Well, good evening. It's great to see you. Welcome on this Good Friday. It is a Good Friday. We do celebrate the death of Jesus because it accomp- of what it accomplished. And so it is a joy for me to be able to not only sing and worship with you over joy over Christ's blood and righteousness, but then also break open the word to you. If you want to turn to John chapter 19, John chapter 19, we'll be looking at verses 17 through 30 with a focus on verse 30. The scene was horrific, having borne his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem after enduring a beating that could almost kill a man in itself. Jesus is now nailed to a Roman cross. The cross is history's one of history's most brutal forms of capital punishment. It symbolized Roman power, and it was a deterrent to any others who might entertain ideas of insurrection or any other criminal activity. Jesus Christ, though not found guilty of any crime against man or against the state, now hung naked and bloody, pierced through his hands and his feet with large iron nails, perhaps even barely recognizable due to the beating, the severity of the previous scourging he had received, facial beatings, the incessant blood flow from that crown of thorns that was placed on his head. Jesus Christ, his body now ravaged with skin lacerations and likely traumatic damage to his internal organs, suffering from severe thirst and blood loss and fatigue, hung between two criminals on a mount of execution, the innocent son of God flanked by two criminals who were getting what they deserved, the son of God innocent. In a final act of disgrace, Soldiers stationed at the cross cast lots for his only garments. You know, though suffering immense physical and spiritual anguish, Jesus looks down to his mother and says, Woman, behold your son, pointing to John, his disciple, and says to John, his disciple, Man, behold your mother. Ever one who is considering other person's interests more important than his own, Jesus is caring for his mother as he is about to leave her, making sure that she has ample provision after her eldest son has died. Pilate's inscription, as we see in the, the text, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, verse 19, his inscription that he had placed on atop Jesus's head said more than he really knew, didn't it? The king of the Jews was truly hanging upon that cross. He was the king of glory who had come to his people, foretold by the Old Testament prophets, but they couldn't see it. His kingdom wouldn't be established by defeating and crushing his enemies. No victory would come through yielding to his enemies, even taking their place. In fact, it's that last sentence, taking their place, that underscores exactly what Jesus was doing on that cross. While there are many today who want to point to Jesus' death as highlighting the danger of social oppression or an example of self-sacrificial love or an example of how to carry your own cross in your own life, Jesus' cross was the place where he did infinitely more than that. It's the place where he actually saved his people. 
didn't make salvation possible. He saved his people. Let's read verses 28 through 30. How did he do that? How did he save his people by taking their place? Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there so that they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Listen to these words again. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said, after receiving the wine, again, it is finished. What's the question that cries out from this text? What's the question? It's what was finished. This question has massive importance, doesn't it? In fact, your eternal destiny hangs on how you answer this question. What was finished at the cross? Why does Jesus, right before he is about to give up his spirit to the Father, say, it is finished? To answer that question, we need to go back several millennia ago to a garden, and not just any garden, God's original sanctuary, we might say. Where God made two human creatures in his image, the first man and the first woman, place them in a perfect environment where there was no sin. It was not yet tainted by sin. It was full of the glory of the Lord. The man and the woman had unhindered communion with God. They enjoyed one another. They had fellowship and relationship with one another, regular and unhindered communion with their creator without the weight and the trouble and the guilt of sin. That's where we are in Genesis chapter 2. And they had been given a command, and they'd been given a command in two parts. The first part was, enjoy the abundance of the creation I have just given you. Enjoy these many trees and this, this fruit and all that there is to enjoy. And not being a prohibitor of an enjoyment, God makes his first part of his command to enjoy. But the second part of it was is to is was that they could not eat from a particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there was a penalty for disobedience. The penalty was death. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says this. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of the trees in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat for in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. The penalty was death for disobedience. And not long after God gave this command, his arch enemy snuck into the garden and he tempted the man and the woman to disobey God's simple command. Questioning God's word, then contradicting God's word, and then making God sound like he's trying to keep something from his two human creatures out of childish jealousy Satan persuades the man and the woman to take of the forbidden fruit and to eat, or take from the forbidden tree and eat. The moment that they ate sin, namely disobedience against God, disobedience against their kind, holy, just, and gracious creator, a reality not yet experienced by these two, had now infected God's image bearers. But what comes after this incident 
is what I want us to look at. It's highly instructive. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve now felt the full weight of sin in that sickening sensation of a defiled conscience for the first time in their lives. And rather than turning to God to remedy their situation, to cover their shame, to remedy their guilt, they make for themselves loin coverings to conceal their nakedness. So we have here in Adam and Eve in verse 7, in Adam and Eve's attempt at self-atonement, their self-covering of sin, the world's first instance of false religion. With their own hands and on their own terms, they formed and fashioned a covering for their sin, something to assuage their guilt now felt deep inside their souls. On their own terms, by their own hands, self atonement and you can characterize mark this you can characterize every false religion in the world from islam to mormonism to roman catholicism to secular humanism as at basic an attempt at self-atonement just like adam and eve's attempt at self-atonement here in verse 7 of genesis chapter 3 no longer looking to god to provide a remedy for sin, fallen mankind turns to good works, self-improvement, philanthropy, religious ritual, morality, work, personal success, political activism, exercise, fad dieting, and so-called spirituality in order to cover that deep-seated shame that just won't go away. Whether you are a religious Catholic or an atheistic evolutionary biologist or a new age spiritualist, you are constantly striving for ways to appease your troubled conscience. And when religious ritual and social activism doesn't seem to pacify one's conscience, many give themselves over to alcohol, opioids, and even methamphetamines to at least drown out that screeching voice of guilt. But in his mercy, God gives Adam and Eve a gift, a promise. He promises in verse 15 of the same chapter that he is going to send a rescuer, a savior. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and then between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and she and you shall bruise his heel. He's going to have victory over this serpent who has deceived you. But he's also going to provide a covering for their nakedness. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and Eve Adam and his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. He didn't restitch slightly more durable loincloths. He covered Adam and Eve in animal skins. And you might think that insignificant. It's not. It's not because here in the early chapters of Genesis, we are given a preview into what would be required to cover sin ultimately. Death and only death can provide a covering, provide atonement for human guilt. We are also given insight into God's means of atonement. It would be the death of a substitute that would cover the sin of God's people. God told Adam that if he uh, sinned, if he disobeyed, he would die. And in order to cover their shame, in order to provide them right covering, God had to bring death about, and he does 
to animals to, in order to cover them with these garments of skin. A little later in the biblical narrative, we learn of Israel, the nation to whom God had revealed himself. One of the main features of Israel's civil and religious lives was their sacrificial system. God had graciously given them a means by which they could have fellowship with him. And individual families were to provide animals to be slaughtered in their place on a regular basis. And the high priest, during the Day of Atonement, would place his hands on the animals, symbolizing the transfer of guilt as he acts on behalf of the whole nation, the transfer of guilt from the people to the animal, that the animal would be slaughtered and die in their place. But on and on, year after year, animal after animal, sacrifice after sacrifice, blood flowing constantly in the land of Israel, spiritually sensitive Jews could tell that this system was inadequate because it had to keep being done over and over. So they anticipated, those who, who, who knew God and who recognized what was going on, they anticipated a future decisive action by God. And in fact, this sacrificial system, graciously given by God, couldn't guarantee Israel's holiness. In fact, you see all throughout the Old Testament, it's a story of Israel turning from God over and over and over. In fact, they even used their religious system as a way to appease their guilt on their terms. They had turned the sacrificial system as a means of self-atonement in order to make up for flagrant sin. But most importantly, what, what we see in, in the life of Israel and in the history of Israel is that no earthly means can finally remove the guilt of sin. Even divinely given earthly means, like a sacrificial system. God himself must come down and remedy our situation. We need full atonement. We need a substitute who will satisfy perfectly God's justice on our behalf. We need a savior who will step into our place, die the death that we are promised and clothe us with his own righteousness, righteousness. Jesus Christ is that substitute. Jesus Christ is the one who provides complete atonement, covering satisfaction for our sin, satisfying the justice of God in our place. Christ pays the penalty of the death that we deserve. That's what we celebrate on Good Friday. I deserve to die. You deserve to die. Jesus died in our place. On the cross, the perfect Lamb of God, without any hint of sin, fully God, so that he could fulfill and satisfy the Father's justice, fully man, so he could take our place as our perfect substitute. Jesus Christ dies in our place, achieving a complete and full atonement. So what did Jesus mean when he said it is finished? What did he mean? He meant that the work of securing salvation for his people was now complete. It was finished. He meant that full atonement had been accomplished in his bearing the wrath of God in the place of sinners. He meant that everything that the Old Testament sacrificial system pictured was now a reality. The final sacrifice had come. The high priest had become also the sin offering and he would die on behalf of his people. He meant that salvation was accomplished on the cross, not just made possible. Jesus saved you on the cross. He saved you. 
He saved us. He meant that the work of salvation has been fulfilled so that nothing is required of you but to turn to Christ and believe in him and what he has done on your behalf. And we know that the father accepted his sacrifice because the son was raised on the third day. Jesus' words, it is finished, stands against every other religion in the world. If you're not a Christian, born again by the Spirit, trusting alone in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, resting in the once-for-all sacrifice, final, complete, never-to-be-repeated work of the Son of God, believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, what we will celebrate on Sunday, if you're not there, then you are merely striving every day to provide atonement for yourself. Every day, as it were, you are stitching new loincloths to cover your shame. Every day, if you are not in Christ, you are merely following your ancestors, Adam and Eve, in providing for yourself with your own hands atonement for your sins. It doesn't matter how religious you are or how adamantly you claim that you are non-religious. Apart from Christ, you can never find cover for your sin. And because you're striving, and this is, this is most important, because you're striving for atonement will never be complete in this life, you will have to complete it, as it were, forever in the never-ending nightmare of eternal judgment in hell. So... Brothers and sisters, this morning, or this evening rather, this evening, let us rejoice in Good Friday. Jesus Christ has provided for us our cover and atonement for sin. I want you to be refreshed as you ponder the reality of the finality of Jesus' work on your behalf on the cross. There's nothing to add. There's nothing to do but to turn from your sins and believe in Him. Look to Christ. Everything has been provided for. Your righteousness that you need. Your, the penalty is paid. Christ has done it all. And if you are here today without Jesus Christ, let today be the day of salvation. Would you, would you let today be the day of salvation? Will you turn to Christ today? Believe in Him and what His work has accomplished for you. Jesus has provided complete forgiveness of your sins, and he says to you, it is finished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are moved just by the simple reminder of this text in John 19.30 that it is finished. It's finished. God, I pray that this reality would cause us to well up even more with worship that as even as we suffer and struggle and wrestle with sin, knowing that we stand righteous before you because of the righteous Son of God. God, I pray if there's anybody here tonight who is without Christ and who is only preparing for themselves an eternal judgment where they will be ever paying for their own sin, God, I pray that they would turn tonight to Jesus Christ. Would you do that great work in our midst? I pray now as we come and take the uh, bread and the cup that you would cause us to look to Christ, to, to have our minds focused and renewed and refreshed on his great work. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. So we do have the privilege of taking the the uh, taking communion this evening, and so I'm going to have the the ushers come up, and as they are uh, handing out the communion or handing out the bread in the the cup, that you would just take a moment to reflect while the the musicians play, just reflect in your own heart, thanking the Lord for his work, reflecting on the meaning of the table, and then we will take it together in a moment.